0: Galatians chapter five. <clears throat> <laughs> A lot of people feel that way when I'm preaching, so <laughs> don't know how to respond to that. I uh, we were we were driving to church this morning, and Lisa asked what I thought was actually an interesting question. And that was, why don't you, why do you only see corn and wheat growing, or corn and soybeans growing in, in, uh, no, no, (laughs) in Nebraska. And so I asked the robot in your phone, I just said, hey, why don't people grow wheat in Nebraska? And she goes, okay, here's what I found on the web. And so I kind of lean forward as I'm driving and look at it, and I'm like, why would wheat be illegal? I'm like, oh, that's not what she heard me ask. (laughs) Because it's illegal. Fair enough. All right, let me pray, and we'll get get serious here. Father, thanks for bringing us here. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping you together. Thank you for... Oh, granting us health enough that we were able to leave the house and and drive to this place and uh, encourage one another for a few minutes before service and then seek to encourage one another through our uh, corporate worship. Seek to obey you through the singing of songs, the reading of scripture and, and our prayers. And... Um, Thank you for just giving us a place to gather where we all fit. We praise and magnify you for that. We ask that this morning as we look into uh, these closing verses of Galatians 5, that, Holy Spirit, you would so work in our midst, um, that we would be strengthened in, in our pursuit of you by the consideration of your pursuit of us. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we centered our attention on verses 22 and 23. We're in the midst of exploring this whole concept of practical sanctification. And when you use the word sanctification, uh, most people immediately start thinking about literally anything else uh, because it's, it's the least... Um, exciting of the tion words that accompany gospel apprehension and faith the reason is because it's the only one of the tion words that relates or corresponds to uh, what, what we do as a result of being saved and so there's two things that happen when you bring up sanctification everybody that is a child of God gets a little bit nervous because we know that we're not far enough along yet or in it, by some measure not as far along as we would like to be <clears throat> and the other thing that happens is because we get a little bit nervous about this topic um, I find people tend to relate back to the worst teaching they've ever heard on it and 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 then as a result don't want to really talk about it or think about it again so i'm trying to as much as possible reinforce what i believe the bible means when it talks about us being set apart in christ is not something that should make us nervous it's not something that should make us uncomfortable or uneasy or unhappy However, because human efforts involved in this T-I-O-N word, um, a lot of preachers and teachers have made wood, hay, and straw, and stubble out of this doctrine, uh, unfortunately. So what we did last week is we, we looked at three points from verses 22 and 23. First... That The good produce that Paul is talking about, this fruit of the Spirit, um, it is not deeds of the Spirit. It's something that flows from the Spirit. It's not something that we make. It's something that he makes. Um, and we looked at a few passages of Scripture that explain precisely how this works. We looked at Luke 6 where Jesus said, look... A tree is going to make whatever kind of fruit it's designed to make. Um, grapes don't come from thistles, right? Figs don't come from, uh, from brambles. Um, Mark 7, where Jesus explains that we are not defiled by what we consume. It's not what goes into us that makes us uh, sinners. It's what's already in us. And therefore, what comes out of us that indicates that we are defiled and then uh, the, I think that kind of explains really, really nicely why we produce sin rather than fruit, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's from within. Are all, yeah, all your, you've got this well from which you can draw all kinds of evil. And James 1, we also looked at, makes it really clear that, look, when you're tempted... Be real and just be honest about this. You're not tempted so much by anything external to you. Definitely you're not tempted by God. But each one is tempted when his own desires, his own lusts come boiling up. So there's there's enough evil just within a human heart to produce all the sin necessary for condemnation. And therefore, we cannot muster up the fruits of the Spirit at all. All we can muster up is sin and the deeds of the flesh. So where do the fruits of the Spirit come from? Well, this was point two. The fruits of fruit, rather, pardon me, sorry. I didn't even even mistype it. I just missaid it. The fruit of the Spirit (laughs) belongs to the Spirit. So we went to John 15, and I made a few points. Um, The promises here are that Jesus is the true vine, and his Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the singular true vine from which the singular fruit of the Spirit comes, and the Father is the one who tends this vine. This means that if we would bear his fruit, we must be grafted into Christ. That's what's implied by Jesus saying, I'm it. I'm the one true vine, and all who abide in me will bear fruit. What Jesus indicates is that we can only produce fruit in keeping with his nature if we are in him. You cannot muster up the fruits of the Spirit. You will only muster up the deeds of your own flesh. What Jesus also indicates is that if we are part of the true vine... We can expect and should expect pruning. Because the father who is the vine dresser is cutting away that which does not produce in order to make room for that which does produce. So pruning hurts. What I suggested to us is that we might know we are part of the vine because we are being pruned. Uh, a lot of conversations that I've had over the years about this subject of sanctification, and let me be really, really clear. Nobody has ever come to me and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you about sanctification, Pastor. That's never happened. But people have come to me in extreme discomfort and pain, emotional and physical and wanted to know what was going on and one of the things that I've, I've tried to relate as gently as possible is that part of what's going on The reason that you're in pain is because God is at work in you to produce that which pleases him We don't tend to learn very much when we're at worlds of fun We tend to learn a lot more when we're in a world of heartache It's just the way that, that things work in a sin fallen world Our education comes, by and large, when we are suffering. So pruning hurts, but I think it's proof that you are alive and that the vine dresser is tending you. God is always at work in the pain points in your life as a Christian. Always. I find that this is perhaps the most important consideration on the subject of the fruit of the Spirit. Because the church took a hard turn some years ago into this idea that spiritual fruit is something which it simply is not. This cultish preoccupation with speaking in tongues or miraculous healings or um, having these sensational emotional experiences as some indication of the Spirit's work. That preoccupation with those things being an indication of the Spirit's work, I believe, is from the devil and his minions. Because it's a marvelous distraction from what the Scriptures clearly teach actually is the Spirit's work and the Spirit's fruit. What Jesus says concerning producing fruit is this. In John 15, 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Let me just say that again. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, it's easy to take that passage in isolation and say, brothers and sisters, don't you want to have the experience of the Holy Spirit moving in your life in a magnificent way? And of course, we would all say, yeah, The problem is, if you take that passage in John 15 in Congress with what Paul says in Galatians 5, here are the fruits which Paul lists. Here is what you might expect to experience as a result of being in the vine and Christ abiding in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which have very little to do with convulsing on the floor, breakthroughs, or physical healing, and everything to do with how we treat one another. Love, which we all know is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense, is something that you are not going to bear primarily by yourself, sitting in your house, listening to your favorite preacher on the internet. That's not where love is going to be expressed. Now, you might, just between you and your iPod, love that experience, but that is not love. Any more than you love tacos or love prime ribs. It's an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your expense. That's what love is. So where does that have its expression? Well, when we're with other people, right? Joy, which is so much more than happiness, is that untouchable sense of confidence in God, even in our darkest moments that I believe must be shared with others. You can bubble along in your basement filled with joy. Great, that's a good start. But when you get in proximity to someone else who is struggling with the trials of life and they see that you who are struggling with the trials of life are yet able to have joy, that's when joy has its full expression. I mean, contrasted with the morose, the miserable, and the cynical, you chat with that person when you're discouraged, and you will emerge thinking everything is lost, (laughs) right? What's the point? But joy blesses. Peace perhaps has its initial expression within us, but it's always displayed most vividly against the backdrop of the chaos of our world's warfare. Patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where do these things show? Isn't it accurate and fair to say that all of the fruits of the Spirit have something to do with how we treat people? Mm -hmm. Not speaking in tongues. Not twitching on the floor because you've been slain in the Spirit. But being Christ-like towards others. And Jesus says, we cannot bear fruit by ourselves. We must abide in him. And this all reinforces my emphasis, I mean, from the beginning of Galatians. Some of you will remember the Mount St. Helen sermon. I said it, this was a warning sign, right? And Galatians is a warning. The design of the gospel is that people, fallen sinful people, would be brought back into relationship with. With their creator. Because the consequence of the fall is that we are out of relationship with our creator. Sin creates a separation between you and God. The gospel restores a relationship which for you individually never existed. But for humanity generally did. We were designed to be in communion with God. And the gospel creates that communion where it didn't used to exist. Galatians tells us that the gospel is about relationship. The fruit comes from the true vine and we must be in relationship with that true vine who is Jesus Christ. The fruit is a blessing to all who encounter us, especially those who are also part of the vine. But where does this blessing have its expression? In relationship with one another. That's where you see the fruit of the Spirit. So why the pruning? Well, because there's so much left of our fallen nature. There's too much of the old me and the new me. Amen? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm just asking you to say it's true about me. You don't even have to say it about yourself. You're all able to look at James and observe. Yeah, woof. Woof. Right? Right? <laughs> Long way to go, but then if you look in a mirror, you see the same is true of you. There's too much of my former life in my new life. Room needs to be made for fruit. So, leaning heavily on the very little bit that I know about gardening, I suggested that there are three categories in each of us that need pruning. Three places where we might feel the, the, the master vine dresser's blade. Obviously, He will cut away the dead stuff, right? And I think, like, for the most part, we know what that is. We expect God to go after the brown, crispy, crunchy bits of us. And we're kind of glad when he does. Oh man, there's parts of my life I'm really glad that God in mercy was just like, eh, you're not going to do that anymore. That's gone now. There are habits I used to engage in which... God and mercy has simply brought an end to. And while it was difficult, I agreed wholeheartedly with his doing so. Then there's the sick. So there's the dead that he cuts away. Then there's the sick. And, and this is difficult because we have such hope for the sick parts of our hearts. The things about us that, are, you know, they're not healthy, but we could see how they might get there. It... Uh, there's friendships that aren't the best for us, relationships that are not good for us. There's the job that, I mean, we, we, I really think I can turn it around. There's the desire of the heart which just isn't getting met by the things we keep trying. And God lovingly, carefully, but somehow often to our surprise, just cuts it away and it hurts because we had hoped so much that that branch would recover. But many of us can testify today that while we resisted the pruning then, and we wept then, we look back now and we are glad that even that happened. We look back and see how much worse it was than we even realized. You ever met some of the people that God cut out of your life 10 years ago, 10 years later? And you go, oh, thank you, Jesus because that was not a trajectory that I wanted to be on. We wept while it was happening, and we might even still well up a little bit when we think about it. But at the end of the day, we see fruit which grows where that sick branch used to be, and we thank God for the pruning, don't we? Then there's the hardest cut to take. Good, but not best. You watch a gardener and you'll see them remove what looks like perfectly healthy branches. And I must confess, I don't understand this pruning at all. They see something I don't. Well, if I remove this, this thing's gonna get better. There are some cuts from my limited perspective which make no sense and result in you sitting like David in Ziklag raising your voice and weeping until you have no strength left to weep you don't know why he makes that cut why would god prune a branch that is bearing fruit well because he said he would john 15:2 every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away wait that branch wasn't bearing fruit. Why would God cut a branch that is bearing fruit? Well, because he said he would. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Psychologists and sociologists have discovered something in the last 30 or 40 years really, really quite amazing about human beings. We have an almost endless capacity for suffering as long as we think there's a point, we will endure ridiculous amounts of pain, emotionally, psychologically, if we just have hope that it's gonna turn around at the end and somehow all be worth it. But my experience with God cutting away the good but not best is that that is suffering to which there does not seem to be any point. Because we don't have his perspective. Why does God take babies with cancer or with birth defects? Why would any parent ever have to bury a child? And you look at somebody that's going through that pastorally and you tell them, hey, look, I promise God is at work in this pain in your life. And it sounds a bit unbelievable. Because from our perspective, that was a good thing that was bearing fruit. But from God's perspective, he's doing something else. What then? When there doesn't seem to be anything being accomplished and you want to be yielded to what God has said and done. What then? I would point you to Jesus Christ at the tomb of Lazarus. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. John eleven thirty five 35 just says, Jesus wept. And the people around said, behold, how much he loved Lazarus. When your heart's broken and you're all cried out, you need to remember this moment in Jesus's life because it's a picture of Psalm 34, 17 through 19. And 18 is a great memory verse, but 17 says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord ultimately delivers him out of them all. I don't know why God prunes parts of us that are good, parts that look healthy, bits of our lives that we think from a human perspective, man, that, that was on the right track. But I know, I know this, If God commands us to weep with those who weep, it must be that he weeps with those who weep. Mm -hmm. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from that tomb. And yet he wept. Because the Spirit so condescends alongside your heart when you are suffering pruning, that even though he sees way down the road how this is gonna be okay and how it's gonna turn out, the Spirit comes alongside you and the Father puts his arm around you and Jesus weeps right there with you. God is always at work in the painful places in our lives. And my last point last week was that the fruit is not plural and I already blew it today once and said fruits instead of fruit. Nine graces are listed, but they're listed as one fruit. The reason for this is just be, just as sure as the graces belong to the Holy Spirit, we, if we are in the vine, we will produce all of the fruit, not just part of it. And this brings us to the closing verses of chapter 5. Galatians five twenty four. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So you got two things going on here. Oh, well, let me say this too. This isn't in my notes, but I'll throw it in at no extra charge. If I were the editor of the Bible, adding chapter and verse divisions... I would have put the last verse of chapter 5 at the beginning of chapter 6. So that's how I'm going to deal with it. We'll deal with it next week. All right. So that said, there's two things going on in verse 24 and 25. You have the crucifixion of the flesh, and you have keeping in step with the Spirit. So first, we've got to remember what the Bible means by flesh. Everybody remember what the Bible means by flesh? Carnal, leftover, Sinful, natural humanity, right? It's it's what we want if apart from Christ. Um, And so Paul very, very uh, helpfully listed out for us the deeds of the flesh in 21 and, and, well, 19 through 21. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And, you know, Stuff like that, right? Paul says in 24, we have crucified that. Past tense, those who are in Christ, those who belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So again, who has done that? Those who are Christ's This is possessive which means we can now add to our existing two characteristics relationship and proximity which we've covered we can add possession you are Christ's so you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We relationship and proximity we've covered. I think this is even more remarkable in one sense. If we belong to Christ, if he owns us, We have crucified immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, drug addiction, violent hatred, strife, jealousy, the losing of our temper, that desire that we have to fight with everyone, wanting what everyone else has, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. We've crucified if we belong to Christ. Look at Romans 6. The way that Paul describes this gives it an element of inevitability, right? If you, are, if you are Christ, this has happened. It's already gone down. It's already occurred. But just to make the point a little more stridently, Romans 6, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this, like his, rather. We know that our old self, what's that say? to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin shall or will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Listen, this is so important that you understand this question. Does, does sanctification require effort on our part? Yes, but it is grace-driven effort. Effort which flows from our relationship with our proximity to and our being property of Jesus Christ. Where do the fruits of the Spirit come from? The root of the Spirit, Jesus Christ He's the true vine. We abide in him. As a result, we bear much fruit. The crucifixion of the flesh is what happens. Listen, the crucifixion of the flesh is what happens. I'll just wait. The crucifixion of the flesh is what happens when we draw near to Jesus Christ. You don't believe me. We're just going to him. That's all we're doing. Right. We're going to him, and maybe you could say amen to this. Most of the time, we're going to him with our hurts, our fear, our shame, and our guilt. Okay. We're just drawing near to Jesus. And the closer we get, the more light gets shined on those things, right? We're going to him with our pain and our sorrow and our shame and our guilt. Because... He promised, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. So here we come, coming to Jesus because I'm still in this body, because I still have my remaining corruption. I am dragging the flesh and all of its desires with me to Jesus. And it is kicking and screaming and it doesn't want to go and I'm killing it. Just by going to Him. Does sanctification require effort? You bet it does. And here's the effort it requires you must go to Jesus. I want to stop sinning. Welcome to the club. Go to Jesus. white knuckle christianity doesn't work but you drag that flesh with its passions and desires to jesus christ and you will kill it in the process now remember when the bible talks about the flesh we're not talking about your skin your organs your muscles or all the connective tissue we're talking about your remaining corruption your leftover sinful fallen nature you drag that to Jesus, kicking and screaming and foaming at the mouth because he promised. The flesh sees the pruning knife in the hand that holds it. Yeah. And then it starts to wheel and deal, doesn't it? And now what the flesh does? Yeah. Oh, come on. It, you know, it's a, you can dabble in some drunkenness. It's all right. Just, you know, don't go too far. Not too much. I'll control myself, I'll, I'll self control my drunkenness. Lighten up, lighten up. It's okay to hate a few people. <laughs> well Who doesn't, right? <laughs> Gotta hate some people. It's just flirting. It's not like you're having a full-on affair. Ah, the flesh. People are going to think you're a weirdo. If you stop doing that, people are going to think you're a weirdo. And then eventually it finally just starts shouting, Stop! 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 Don't get any closer to Jesus. I can't take it. Oh, and then the devil shows up and he says, Don't get any closer to Jesus because he doesn't want you. And the world shows up and says, Don't get any closer to Jesus or we won't like you. And you just... Get to the point where you don't care. Doesn't your heart cry out? Go ahead, Father. Cut away, please. Does sanctification require effort? Oh, yeah. Go to Jesus. Because I know what's in the chasm of license, and I know what's in the chasm of legalism, and what I want is freedom, liberty, I want to lay this burden down, and I want to live. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Does that require effort? Yeah. Hey, have you ever tried to walk in step with somebody? Like march? I'm, yeah, I've got like a normal-sized torso, but I have Calvin and Hobbes-sized legs. <laughs> so walking in step with somebody means i have to like lengthen my stride beyond what's natural or comfortable. And if you want to get where you know when their right foot goes your right foot goes and their left foot goes your left foot goes you have to like do this little stutter step skip thing right to get in into rhythm with them. Romans 8 verse 12 Paul says so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you did not receive, sorry, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Yes, yes, sanctification requires effort on your part yes keeping in step with the holy spirit requires effort on your part we have to get on our knees and pray we have to get in his word and read it and we have to come and fellowship with other believers. But you, you, you can take this to the bank. You never have to lengthen your stride to get in step with the Holy Spirit because Jesus condescended and came down here and made his stride like your stride so that he would be able to identify with you and all of your suffering and all of your sorrow. Amen. You want to walk with the Spirit? Just ask him. Walk with me, Jesus. I don't want to go alone. I need some company. I'm afraid. I'm sick. I'm scared. I don't feel right. I'm tired of my own sin. And he will walk with you. It seems like God is trying to get us to understand that those efforts that we make towards sanctification will be met with incomprehensible blessing. Because what is the spirit that he gives us? The spirit of adoption by which we cry out Abba, Father. Keep in step with that spirit. We're so militaristic. We hear keep in step with the spirit. We're like, sir, yes, sir. (laughs) I will do it. Frenetic religious activity. But what he's saying is come be a son. Come be a daughter. And have all the blessings of that inheritance. None of this is hard. Other than the fact that we're part of a new family right? And we have each other to to deal with. But we have the spirit of adoption, so we keep going to the Father, we keep crucifying the flesh, and as a result, we have fellowship with Him and with one another. Yes, sanctification requires effort, but it is grace-driven effort. Let's pray.